0: Good morning. Welcome to Reunions 2017. We had a wonderful day yesterday, some fabulous lectures. I hope your dinners last night were enjoyable. And we have another great day planned today, not to mention the fabulous weather. We're thrilled, thrilled with that for you to be back on grounds. My name is Cecilia McGargy, and I work on the Lifetime Learning team in the Office of Engagement. And on behalf of Lifetime Learning and the Alumni Association, I want to thank our moderator today, Barbara Perry, uh, next to her is Bill Antholis and Jeff LeGros who are on our panel. We're going to have a great lecture. If you could just take a quick minute and silence your cell phones, that would be great. Additionally, at the end of our program, there are some green, some green sheets about this big lying around. Those are our feedback surveys. If you could just take a minute and fill those out, we'd really appreciate it. Okay, let me introduce our moderator. Barbara Perry is the White Burkett Miller Professor of Ethics and Institutions at the University of Virginia's Miller Center, where she is the Director of Presidential Studies and Co-Chair of the Presidential Oral History Program. She is also the Project Director of the Edward M. Kennedy Oral History Project. She has authored or edited books, authored or edited 13 books and articles, is that right, Barbara, and more than 35 articles and book chapters. Professor Perry has lectured throughout the United States and is a frequent media commentator on public affairs for, settle in for a minute, CBS, PBS, CNN, C-SPAN, MSNBC, NPR, PRI, Fox News, BBC, the New York Times, the Washington Post, the Sunday Times of London, USA Today, Bloomberg News, and the list goes on. (laughs) Ladies and gentlemen, please help me welcome Barbara Perry.
1: Thank you, Cecilia, for that very nice introduction. Uh, good morning, everyone. Uh, what a pleasure to be with you this morning. Welcome back to Grounds on this beautiful Saturday morning and a hearty wah Or should I say, presidentially, fe <laughs> It's an honor and delight to introduce my fellow political scientists and colleagues and friends, Bill Antholis and Jeff LeGrow. <coughs> Bill is our executive director and CEO at the Miller Center, so I have the pleasure of working with him every day. I also had the pleasure of serving on the search committee for him that was led by Jeff LeGros and Gene Fife. And Bill came to us from the Brookings Institution, where he was the managing director for 10 years. He holds his BA from UVA, class of 1986, and has a PhD in politics from Yale University. Prior to going to the Brookings Institution, Bill started with the State Department on the policy planning staff and in the Bureau of Economic Affairs. He also served as deputy director of the White House Climate Change Task Force and helped to coordinate the Clinton administration team at the Kyoto and Buenos Aires negotiations of the UN Intergovernmental Convention on Climate Change. So Bill may have something to say about some of the events this week. He's also the author of Inside Out, India and China, Local Politics Go Global, and he's the co-author of Fast Forward, Ethics and Politics in the Age of Global Warming. He also served as at the White House as Director of International Economic Affairs of the National Security Council and the National Economic Council. So you see why we were so delighted to have him join us at the Miller Center. In Jeff's case, he holds his BA from Middlebury College and a PhD from UCLA. As I say, he is also a fellow political scientist. Jeff, currently here at the university, is the Vice Provost for Global Affairs. In the Office of the Executive Vice President and Provost. He is a specialist as a political scientist in international relations and he's the author of several books, Rethinking the World, Great Power Strategies and International Order, uh, Cooperation Under Fire, Anglo-German Restraint During World War II. He's the co-editor of the book To Lead the World, U.S. Strategy After the Bush Doctrine and In Uncertain Times, American Foreign Policy After the Berlin Wall. Jeff has been awarded grants from the Fulbright Foundation, the Council on Foreign Relations, the U.S. Institute of Peace, the Ford Foundation, the Institute on Global Conflict and Cooperation, the Institute for the Study of World Politics, and Harvard University's Olin Institution. In 2011, Jeff was the Fulbright Nehru Senior Researcher at the Institute for Defense and Strategic Analyses in New Delhi. So I think, given the expertise of these two gentlemen, India and China may also be uh, on our agenda today. Um, That's the good news. The bad news for the University of Virginia is that Jeff is leaving us. But the good news for him and the University of Richmond is that he will soon take up his position there as the provost at U of R. Uh, So we wish him all the best in that. And with that, I'm going to turn over the table uh, to our first speaker. And there will be a PowerPoint presentation. So I'm going to take my seat downstairs. We'll have our second presentation. Then we'll all come up to the table uh, and have a discussion. And then we'll open up for your questions. So be thinking about what you want to ask on this topic. Thank you so much again for being here.
2: Um, First of all, it's great to be here uh, with fellow graduates of the university. Uh, as Barbara mentioned, I graduated in the class of 1986, and last night I was honored to speak at the Thomas Jefferson Society dinner. How many people were there last night? Because some of this will repeat. Okay, good, I won't repeat too much, but for the others that weren't there, I'll give you just enough of what we talked about last night. Barbara and I graduated the same year. She got her PhD uh, the year that I graduated, and. Um, it's terrific to be here, and it's really great to be here with Jeff. As you heard, Jeff um, co-chaired the search committee that led to my hiring, but I have been living in Charlottesville for almost 20 years. I would go up to D.C. on Tuesday mornings and come back on Thursday nights. The joke in our family was Thursday was my wife's favorite day and Tuesday was her second favorite day. Um, <laughs> but in, in those 20 years, Jeff and his wife Janet were among our closest friends. Uh, and Jeff's last day is Monday, so uh, it's really quite an honor to, uh, I think, be at Jeff's last public appearance here at the university together with him. He's an extraordinary leader and um, has been a real mentor to me. Jeff spent time a year living in China and six months living in India with his family, and that prompted my family and uh, and me to live in both places in six months, and including intersecting with Jeff when we were in India. Uh, so this is really uh, a pleasure for me and uh, I think a delight for you all. What I'm going to talk about is a, a project that we've been working on at the Miller Center for almost uh, two years, actually two years almost exactly. Uh, that Barbara and her team in presidential studies really have been the engine behind and I'm just sort of the the front man from time to time. This is looking back across the archives of the Miller Center uh, to prepare the next president, whoever he or she might be, for the first year in office, which is a real crucible. You take over a government of four million employees, one and a half million men and women in uniform, two and a half million civilian employees. And nothing prepares you for this, no matter who you are. Um, No matter how successful you've been, no matter what kind of organization you've run, there is just nothing as big as the US federal government, including, it turns out, the Chinese and the Indian federal governments. This is actually a bigger and more complicated operation. Um, The Miller Center's strengths are, we have done the official oral history for every president since Jimmy Carter. Barbara co-directs that program with Russell Riley. that is, in-depth interviews with the 100 or so leading officials at the White House and the Cabinet agencies. Yesterday, Barbara did one with um, Eric Edelman, uh, former national, Deputy Na- National Security Advisor to Dick Cheney, Under Secretary of Defense for Policy, Ambassador to Turkey and Finland. Um, and there are 99 others in the Bush 43 administration that she and her colleagues will have interviewed by the end of this year. And they did the same thing for Clinton and the same thing for Bush 41 and Reagan and Carter and uh, a two-day oral history of the Ford administration. We did not do a Nixon oral history, but we have been transcribing the Secret Oval Office recordings of the Nixon administration, and also the Johnson administration and Kennedy administrations. Um, and those 4,000 hours of Secret Oval Office recordings were sort of a, um, a live transcript on what happened in the decision-making in those administrations. So just to give you a sense, and, apologies to the folks last night who have heard this, but there are more of you here who didn't hear it last night. Just a glimpse of, um, this is not a secret recording, but a glimpse of the kind of things that you would hear in our presidential recordings program.
3: If the problems are more uh, difficult than I imagined them to be, the responsibilities placed in the United States are greater than I imagined them to be. And there are, greater limitations upon our ability to bring about a favorable result than I had imagined them would be.
2: Problems are harder, responsibilities greater, the ability to affect change is more difficult. Donald Trump said that himself on the 99th day in office. And what you hear in these transcriptions, what you hear in our oral histories, is just how hard a job it is to run the federal government. Um, this is not unusual. Presidents fail. They fail time and time again. In five different ways, in assembling personnel, in putting together a process to connect their people, in identifying and sticking to their priorities, and um, in managing the politics, even if they have friends on Capitol Hill, managing the politics of Capitol Hill with labor trade associations and others, um, and then finally managing their personal communications. So, what I'll quickly do, so not as to repeat last night is to go through these with an eye to foreign policy and then turn it over to Jeff to, to give us a historical context for the substance of these things. In foreign policy, it's really easy to get this wrong. Um, you can assemble the best people in the world and they will still screw things up for you. This is Al Haig, who was a four-star general and a former White House Chief of Staff uh, and who is Ronald Reagan's Secretary of State. and. Uh, just over two months into office at the end of March uh, 1981 when Ronald Reagan was famously shot outside the Hilton Hotel and was at GW Hospital, um, Al Haig stepped forward and said, I am in command here at the White House. And of course, the Constitution says the vice president is in charge. And um, more importantly, I mean, this is symbolic of the fact that Al Haig thought he was in charge of U.S. foreign policy as Secretary of State, and of course the President is in charge. Um, You have to have people who are really good and confident in their job, but also understand their role and their place. Um, So it's easy to get that wrong. It's also easy to get it right for the most part. Sandy Berger was President Clinton's National Security Advisor, and I can assure you I will say bad things about President Clinton in this talk. But um, the one thing he did well in his foreign policy, which I really learned, Sandy Berger was my boss and I adored him, I thought he was terrific. But I learned from his oral history, um, which I read right after he passed away uh, a year and a half ago. His oral history is about a um, book length that would be about a 200-page book and it reads like a novel. He was President Clinton's National Security Advisor 24-7, 365 for nine years. He took on the title Deputy National Security Advisor in the first term. He was offered the National Security Advisor job, something I didn't know. And he turned it down. He said, because I'm not a big enough name and I'm not well-known enough, you need to have, and it ended up being Tony Lake, who was better known at the time. But Sandy understood that his job was to be behind the President and whisper in his ear, and be the last person that whispered in his ear after everybody else had been heard. he was graceful in the way that he conducted himself in that job. So as you assemble a team, people need to know and understand their role, and they also need to know and understand what the president wants. Um, just a sense of where the Trump team is in this regard in terms of timing. You put together your team pretty quickly. Um, most, these are the five most important, from our assessment, or perhaps mine, of the five most important positions in the, in the cabinet when it comes to foreign affairs. Secretary of State, Secretary of Defense, the Justice Department, because of the role the FBI plays in intelligence gathering. Um, HHS, which is really quite critical, um, particularly if there's a national security emergency like 9-11, and um, the Treasury Department. And this is just a sign of how quickly administrations have been able to confirm their cabinet secretaries. Sometimes it happens in January, It occasionally bleeds into February, sometimes as late as March. So generally speaking, you want to get your team in very quickly, and um, the Trump administration has done quite well in that regard. After a somewhat um, slow transition, they had built a transition team in the run-up to election day. They then fired the leaders of that transition team, brought in a new team under Vice President Pence, and they were still able to get their cabinet confirmed within the first few weeks in office. And then they needed to establish a process, and no matter how good your team is, getting process is really important. This is an A-list team, as you'll hear Vice President, uh, later Vice President, Secretary of Defense Cheney describe, after a failed coup in Panama, this is how he described their process.
3: We were disorganized, out of place. I'm up running around in Gettysburg. Uh, General Powell has just been sworn in. He's the brand-new chairman. I don't know where the hell Baker was, but, but, you know, we weren't... We didn't react well to it, and and, uh, it bothered us a lot. And what it led to, as I say, was a real strengthening of the processes, the deputies' committee in particular, and the way they worked and coordinated uh, the number twos of the Wolfowitz, the Gates... uh, People like that who, uh, who were able and to function and uh, so that we could operate better. And We learned from the Panamanian experience, both the failure when the coup attempt came in October as well as when we finally did the operation in December, we learned a lot as a team about uh, how to work, how to function, what the issues were you have to deal with. One of the real problems you have with any new administration, even one as experienced as ours was, is we weren't a bunch of amateurs. We'd been around there before. Um, it's hard you know, that there is no training ground for senior civilian political leaders in an administration. We were lucky. I mean, you know, we had a president who'd been schooled in it for years. I'd been White House Chief of Staff. Scowcroft was doing the NSC job for the second time. We used to joke he was gonna have to keep doing it until he got it right. Um, Baker had been Chief of Staff and Secretary of uh, Treasury and now state. uh, You know, this was a pretty, pretty experienced crew, General Powell's background. But even then, you know, we weren't as good as we needed to be. And there isn't any process today by which the new team, when they come on board, get any of that experience.
2: Just a quick anecdote about this story. Barbara and I were in Jackson Hole a year and a half or so ago and had dinner with Vice President Cheney. And the year before, Barbara and her whole team did five days of oral history interviews with Vice President Cheney about the Bush 43 administration. He told us this story to help us think about the first year project. What I had not realized was he had told us this story in the Bush 41 oral history project where he had served as Secretary of uh, Defense. And so we went back through the archives and found it and found not just the transcript, but the audio tape. And this is the value that Barbara's oral history program brings. It's not just Dick Cheney sitting around at a dinner party telling stories. It um, lives in our archives and is something that we can comb and promote and bring to any incoming administration. Um, So process is critical and getting the deputies to work together is very important. And it was very important for them because one month after that failed coup in Panama, the Berlin Wall fell, And that team working together at the end of a first year ended up bringing uh, bringing into being the end of the Cold War, perhaps the most successful moment in American diplomacy since the end of World War II and the Marshall Plan. Um, The critical importance of deputies is something that really comes from uh, that interview and that lesson for next presidents. And it's really important to get your deputies in early. And as I, I said last night, perhaps of all the controversies surrounding the first uh, few months of the Trump administration, for me the thing that I am hoping they will continue to focus on and get right is the appointment of deputies. We talked about when uh, the principles get confirmed, the confirmation of deputies is um, equally, perhaps even more important because they actually run the federal agencies. Uh, This is how previous administrations and how the Trump team is doing on getting the deputies in. Uh, So this is when, say, the Deputy Secretary of Defense was confirmed, state in February, March, and so on. Generally speaking, you're getting your deputies confirmed by the end of 100 days, maybe bleeding into May a little bit. And as it stands right now, we only have one deputy confirmed in the federal government. And so if you've got friends in Washington or people connected to the Trump administration, I would not complain about policy, even something like climate change that I've worked on for a year. Please, let's get deputies confirmed. And that's a message to Democrats and Republicans. These people are really critical for managing our government, particularly in moments of crisis. Then you focus on priorities. Just uh, the example that I used last night is... Uh, These two gentlemen uh, are people that I got to know. Their mantra at Bill Clinton's electoral priority was, it's the economy, stupid. Remember, Bill Clinton got elected appealing largely to working class uh, white voters um, on how he would help bring jobs to middle America. And a week into office, Bill Clinton then started focusing on gays in the military. Now that may be a very worthy cause, but he didn't have the people or the process in place to advance that agenda. So he came to a priority, not being prepared to do so, and he didn't have a plan, and he ended up with a policy six months later that was the exact opposite of what he wanted. Rather than gays being able to serve openly, he had don't ask, don't tell. Um, It's very important to stick to priorities, um, and we've learned that lesson of success the most probably from the Bush 43 White House. We remember this moment as 9-11, which it was, when Andy Card said America is under attack. but this moment for me is, is, uh, embodies that George Bush knew what his priority was. His bipartisan priority in his first year was getting education reform passed. This is nine months in. He had started working on it with Ted Kennedy one month in. He brought Ted Kennedy to the White House to screen the film 13 Days, which was uh, about how John Kennedy and Bobby Kennedy helped solve the Cuban Missile Crisis. And coming out of that meeting, they agreed together that they were going to work together uh, on a number of issues, including, in particular, education reform. And by the end of that first year, they were able together to get No Child Left Behind passed. It is hard to get things passed in the U.S. Congress. Even if you have uh, a majority in both houses of Congress of your own party, it's really difficult to get things done. Uh, We'll see that in some other things that we'll talk about here. We're seeing that right now with President Trump and his priorities, President Bush knew that, mostly from his father's experience, and he knew that he needed support in both houses from both parties. And it took him one year to get this done, but he did get it done. That goes to managing the politics. Um, as I said before, you, you can be elected as an outsider, and your party can control both houses of Congress, and that is not a guarantee for success. And Jimmy Carter proved that. Um, and he tells us why in this sound clip.
3: I didn't have any obligations much to the people in Washington for my election. Very few of the members of the Congress or the members of the major lobbying groups or the distinguished former Democratic leaders have played much of a role in my election. So there wasn't that that tie of of, of campaign interrelationship that ordinarily would have occurred had I not been able to win the nomination by myself. They just didn't have a, that sort of a, a potential tie to them. And I think they felt that they were kind of on the outside.
2: So managing the politics is quite important and since today's panel was on foreign policy. That applies to foreign policy as well as to domestic policy. Uh, almost every president in the last Uh, 40 years has had challenges with Congress on foreign policy, including occasionally with their own party. And you need to be on top of that, establish those relationships to drive that forward. I'm going to skip through some of these slides which are mostly focused on the uh, the domestic legislative process, but just point to Bill Clinton. This is Bill Clinton at the end of his first year signing NAFTA into law. And I think what Bill Clinton came to understand after a rocky first six months is, If he could establish bipartisan connections and focus on something in the nation's interest in the foreign policy realm, he could bring Democrats and Republicans together. Um, And this was very important to Bill Clinton's popularity turnaround in his first year, which I'll mention uh, in a bit. This is just a a sketch of where legislative accomplishments tend to happen in first years. Uh, The reason that we have uh, a two shade here is the 100th day is essentially at the end of April. And there's been a lot of emphasis on 100 days, but 100 days is not where the accomplishments tend to happen. They tend to happen down here. And, you know, President Trump's big opportunity and challenge is what can he get done by the end of that first year mark, after which the Congress stops thinking about the president and starts thinking about their own reelection. Finally, the personal. Managing how you conduct yourself and how you're viewed by people is a big part of the first year. Nothing prepares you for the scrutiny of being President of the United States and I promised uh, some fun at Bill Clinton's expense and this is my favorite. Uh, As people last night heard from a branding standpoint, you've got a hat saying one thing, a shirt saying another and you're speaking both to coffee drinkers and Coca-Cola drinkers evidently. Um, And uh, and Saturday Night Live didn't miss a beat here. He's got his Georgetown hat and his Arkansas uh, sweatshirt on. I would never wear a Yale hat if I had my UVA sweatshirt on, just to repeat the joke from last night. you know, obviously, you, you want to project simple, clear messages to audiences, be the kind of president that Americans want you to be. Um, and it's very important to manage the personal side of communication as you manage your popularity in your first year. And popularity is really critical both in domestic and foreign policy. Um, notice, the general trend line is to go down. Carter goes down and Reagan's um, popularity went up after his assassination attempt but um, went down in his first year. Both Bush 41 and Bush 43 after national security crises saw their population, popularity rise in the first year. Um, as I mentioned, President Clinton's went down and then came back up mostly from a successful confirmation of Ruth Bader Ginsburg and the signing of NAFTA, which was a bipartisan success. Um, President Obama just watched a a regular downward slide and he went below 50%, came back up again just before his reelection, then went back down and then came back up again toward the end of his uh, second term. President Trump starts at relatively, well at historically low numbers and has continued to decline. And so then the question is, are there domestic legislative uh, successes that can lead to a popularity rise? Or can he successfully manage an international crisis like 9-11 for President Bush 43 um, or the fall of the Berlin Wall and the Panama um, interactions for Bush 41 that would, uh, would bring popularity. Um, and to, to close on this note, popularity is really critical at the end of the first year with midterm elections looming. Um, you really want to hold both houses of Congress. Uh, particularly for a president under investigation. And I say that again with respect to the Clinton administration. In Bill Clinton's first year, first term, he had an investigation going on about the um, uh, travel gate, as well as early investigations of Whitewater. And he ends up, even though he has relatively high popularity at the end of his first year, he then ends up taking on health care, and that brings his, because it fails in his second year, it brings his popularity down, and he ends up losing the House of Representatives. No president since uh, public opinion polling started in the late 1940s has ever had popularity below 45% and still controlled both houses of Congress. So the big challenge for President Trump, particularly with investigation swirling, is can he keep both houses of Congress and can he do something to get his popularity up? and with that, I'm going to turn it over to Jeff on the national security side to give us some international historical context, a look forward as to where we, we might be, and then we can go to uh, conversation in Q&As.
4: Thank you Bill and uh, thank you barbara um, it 's a pleasure to be up here uh, with you two uh, and my final uh, final uh, podium here at uh, uva uh, and it 's great to be with all of you um, here today. One of the f- my favorite parts of my job these these last five years as Vice Provost for Global Affairs has been that I give a lot of alumni talks ar- around the country and around the world and um, that's actually been the thing that has been my greatest source of energy is I get a chance to talk to you all and it says, wow, this is what um, our education leads to. And uh, that's an incredible inspiration. Uh, so I'm, I'm just thrilled to be here today. Mo- most of my time uh, here at UVA has been spent as a professor. I uh, teach and work on uh, international relations. And um, uh, and uh, so it's a, a nice opportunity here to talk about uh, Trump's foreign policy. Um, and what I'd like to do is um, just talk a little bit about where this foreign policy sits. A lot of people see Donald Trump as sui generis, as unique. And um, I'd like to try to put him in a comparative context in two senses, uh, comparative context of, um, uh, of history and a comparative context of leadership across the world. And, you know, the overwhelming, I think, um, uh, adjective that is applied to Trump's foreign policy is tactical. People see it as tactical and reactive. And and I think there's a much more strategic element of it. It's strategic in that Trump is riding a broader wave of history and a broader wave of um, of political dynamics that are global, not just part of the US. So historically, there has been, um, in macro terms, one big shift in American foreign policy. And, And that big shift is that before World War II, the United States was allergic to getting entangled in international commitments and relationships that might pull it into the world of power politics, that might sully its pristine um, sense of its own unique self, that might um, drain its resources when it needed those resources uh, to develop as a country. And um, in World War II, Um, and the events that led up to it, that changed the U.S. framework fundamentally uh, from standing apart, from not being engaged, from not being committed, right, reaffirmed especially after World War I when the U.S. violated that rule and got involved in European politics. That was when you got the first era of America first. It must be America first. We must not be drained by our entanglement and these other uh, other um, uh, activities outside of our borders and and that shifted uh, there was a reflection that that didn 't serve u s interests that that didn 't fit u s relative power that somehow our security interests and our economic interests and our very well being depended on us being engaged, being committed to these international uh, agreements and alliances in um, in opening our borders more than we had in the past, and, um, and that we had to do that because that was what served our national interests. And today we have a president that doesn't seem to fear, clearly fit either of these tropes. He uses the words of America first, but the, does not match the isolationism of that America first of the 1920s. He's not arguing for isolationism. He's, he's arguing that you want to be engaged, it's just that the US should have a better deal when it's getting, being engaged. It should be America's interests first, not served simply by staying at home, but by being very careful about who's paying the cost and who's getting the benefits. On the other hand, there is a, a very much an emphasis on sovereignty, on traditional sovereignty, on a wariness of being involved in too many commitments overseas that, that don't serve uh, the United States. So it's easy for people to see, I think, this, this old view of US foreign policy, but it's not that simple. It could go further that way, that's true, but it also could turn more towards the new view, or it could carve out a third space, and I'll come back to that later. But historically, Trump's, view, Trump's views are not unique. They're more a blending of traditions that we've seen in the past. Okay, how about um, comparatively? How does he compare to other trends we're seeing in political dynamics in the world? So. I think three things you see when you look across the foreign policies of of major what I'll call shaper nations today, Uh, those countries that are emerging and really going to shape the future. The first thing you'll see is that in each country there is a fundamental debate about identity of that country, what its role should be, what its place in the world should be. So in China, communist China, communist no longer applies. China is searching very hard for what adjective is going to replace that. It's a capitalist country more or less today, but it's run by a communist party. There are fierce debates in China about what what its role uh, should be in the world. Similarly, Turkey, is Turkey an Islamic country or is it a European country? right? What you've seen there is very fierce debates still going on about what the identity of that country should be. Russia, is it this imperialist country? What is it today? What defines Russia? India used to be a non-aligned country, but today it recognizes that it needs to be engaged in the world and, and perhaps uh, entangled a bit in order to, to go forward. But within India, there's that same fundamental debate. So countries are really trying to figure out who and what, who they are and what they stand for. Second major trend is a dispersal, dispersal of authority within countries. Central governments are having a harder time getting things done. Power is being dispersed to regional government governments, it's being dispersed to functional bureaucracies which are gaining authority. You're seeing a rise of non governmental actors which are which are allying across borders and seizing more authority and voice and power in getting things done. And governments, frankly, are having a hard time getting things done. It's true in China, it's true in India, it's true in Israel. Okay? And so you see it across the board that these national governments are struggling to be effective, to be competent, to have the authority to push back and drive measures through. And the third thing that, that comes out of number one and number two is the rise of powerful leaders, the cult of personalities that has shown up across the board. So in China, it's uh, Xi da, da Big Uncle Xi. Right? She has assumed power and centralized power in ways that have not occurred since Mao. All right? In India, Modi, huge cult of personality, Right, um, pushback on traditional sources of power, centralization of authority in the person, Erdogan in Turkey, Putin in Russia. Even Merkel in Germany, a lot of personality there, a lot invested in one person for a country like Germany. This is unusual, okay? And so when you look at that, and that all came out of a study we did looking at the comparative policies of of these emerging powers, which were supposed to be uh, different than the traditional powers, these future shaper powers, you see the exact same thing in the United States. The search for identity, what is the polarization of American politics about if it's not about two fundamentally different views of what U.S. identity should be going forward? Dispersal of power. We all know it's hard to get things done in Washington these days. Power is diffusing from the national governments, right? So um, I, was, I was traveling uh, with, with a governor um, uh, of Virginia and we were out in Asia, and it was right after the election, and and the governor of uh, Virginia's message was, don't worry about this anti-trade stuff. I am the uh, incoming head of the Governor's Association, and I can tell you governors of all 50 states believe in trade fundamentally, right? So governors are going to be pushing against Trump on a lot of issues, not just climate change, trade. There's a host of other things that will, will take place. So in the US, authority is much more difficult. And so is it that surprising that we also have the emergence of a personality, of a powerful personality, the hope that that powerful personality is gonna cut through things moving forward, okay? Um, so what I would say is you know, what we see in terms of putting this in perspective is uh, a president uh, that is pushing back against some of the traditions. And, we don't know if ultimately he will be the exception that proves the rule. Because he is an exception to American foreign policy in the post-World War II period and some of these themes of leadership and engagement with international organizations and alliances, right? It may be that his efforts don't succeed and that reinforces the rule. It may be that they succeed and they establish a new type of tradition in the United States that further presidents have to, have to follow. And in terms of the global comparison, we just have to keep in mind that what we're seeing in the United States, we're seeing elsewhere, the UK. Um, I think what we've seen in the elections uh, in in Germany and France have been a reaction to a reaction. Right. The first reaction was the reaction to globalization. Um, uh, right. Because globalization is a large part of this dispersal of authority, and it's about these leaders trying to claw back that authority in order to react. Right. And what you saw in Germany and France, I think, was a reaction to what happened in the UK and the US and the mobilization of political forces that said, we're not ready to go there. So how these play out is very uncertain. So why don't I end there, invite the other two panelists back up, and we can get nitty gritty into some of the more specific uh, foreign policy issues you may be interested in. Thank you. You're over here, Bill. That was great. You're over one. Oh, no, you're there.
1: (laughs) Thank you, Jeff and Bill, for those fascinating presentations. Um, I thought that we would start. Again, we'll have about 15 minutes, I think, for discussion, then we'll open up for the last 15 minutes for your questions in the audience. Um, I I asked and and called from Bill and Jeff the areas of the world that they would like to discuss now in light of each of their presentations. And we thought, for obvious reasons, we would start with Russia. Um, Talk to us, if you will, um, about, what's happening with Russia. If you want to speak generally, that's fine. If you want to speak to the specific issues that we're hearing about every day, every night, 24-7, the possibility of campaign collusion, the um, transition back channels uh, during the presidential transition, uh, the presidential sharing of intelligence, um, relaxing sanctions, and even this week the return Or the speaking about returning the two Russian compounds uh, in the United States that uh, Obama had closed down as part of the the sanction uh, process, in his mind, uh, because of the collusion uh, during the election. So I'll throw that out uh, to both of you.
4: Well, I suppose they're looking at me because uh, I, I actually once lived in the in the in the Soviet Union. Um, I was in the, to date myself. I was in the U.S. Embassy the day Ronald Reagan was elected president, and um, it's been an amazing transformation uh, to watch what has happened in uh, in Russia over the years. Um, for me, looking at what's happening right now, is you have, you know, you have, you have uh, two hands, right? On the one hand, you have a country where a, a, a president actually has a lot of personal connections um, and has done a lot of activity over the years. And the question is, is, is he playing on those relationships to further the interest of the country? Um, by maximizing those relationships to um, try to more effectively use um, um, U.S.-Russian relations um, to do good for the country, right? And several presidents have tried this and not done particularly well with Mr. Putin, and the question is, can Trump do better? On the other hand, is he in bed with the Russians? You know, is there some dirt there? Do they have him by the collar? The Russians are excellent at trapping you in ways that might compromising you, and then using that against you. I mean, that is that has been the deep strength of their intelligence over years. I don't know which it is, um, but um, but but I do know um, there are there are possibilities for good, and possibilities. Uh, for things not so good to come out of that relationship.
2: Um, I'll talk a little bit about um, the multilateral engagement of Russia and, again, um, continuity and break with continuity. And multilateral in two sense, one internationally and then one domestically. There are a lot of other players here who care. Multilaterally, going back to the Reagan period and beyond, there is always this tension with partners around the world for how to deal with russia different countries have different views of these and particularly since the end of the cold war within western europe there are always debates when i was in the white house whether or not the united states should proceed with nato enlargement or not um, and we chose to which was seen as um, bold uh... internationally seen as american conservatism and and um, Uh, Yet in Eastern Europe, it was strongly supported. So some in the West feared that this might anger Russia, but in Eastern Europe, there was great enthusiasm for that. And you're seeing what is fascinating about this moment is a strengthening of and unification of European views about Russia at the exact moment that the United States seems to be going in a different direction. Um, And then in the US, domestic political context, Russia has tended to be rather controversial. Um, that is that uh, on one hand, during the Cold War, I think there was always a rallying around the president. Um, on the other hand, I, I was, we, Miller Center often supports um, with the, the UVA, um, the Virginia Film Festival, a film about the president. We were looking at a film, is it six days in May? Seven, seven, seven days in May, which is set in the Uh, early 1960s, and it's about a liberal president who wants to do a deal with the Russians, and the military um, essentially throws a coup against an American president for being too cozy with the Russians. In this case, that president was too liberal and trying to cozy up to communist Russia. But the consensus back then in American politics was to be anti-Soviet, anti-Russian. And what is striking in this moment in the United States is not just among Democrats, but among Republicans, like Bob Corker, the Senate, uh, head of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, John McCain, Ben Sasse, almost everybody um, on the Republican side is a fear of the current Russian government. Um, and that extends down into the federal bureaucracy. And so what makes, I think, this moment so challenging for President Trump, even if on the merits he is right about um, a better relationship with Russia. And every president wants to try to do that for some reason. There is not really a domestic political consensus for that. And that will complicate the foreign policy dimensions of this, let alone things having to do with investigations.
1: Right. So could we uh, just go back a week or two now uh, and look at the president's first trip abroad, Uh, trips to the Middle East, uh, trips to Europe, G7 uh, summit, but also add in the
2: climate change element of of this week. And Bill, can
1: I start with you sure. on that?
2: Yeah. Um, so I had two jobs when I worked at the White House. I had a spring sport and a, a fall sport. And the way, if you're a junior staffer, I was about thirty, thirty-two, thirty-three years old when I worked at the White House. I worked there for just a little over two years, and you get traded from boss to boss for like a role of stamps and a box of paper clips. And when when I tell that joke to my kids, just note, they have no idea what stamps or paper clips are, because you don't need either for an iPhone. Um, and so my Spring Sport was working on G seven summits. It was twenty years ago this month that the United States hosted a G seven summit in Denver. It was the Denver Summit of the Eight. We were bringing Russia into the G7, a democratic Russia into the G7, essentially as a trade off for expanding NATO to their borders. Um, the US economy was roaring. Bill Clinton was at the height of his popularity. He had just been reelected. He was doing great. And he shows up at Denver, and the other six members of the G7, not the Russians, are all over his case because the United States has not yet met it, made a pledge for what they're going to do at Kyoto. As he said to us on the plane on the way home afterwards, they made me look at the, like the skunk at my own garden party. <laughs> so G7 has always been a forum for discussion and debate on climate change, and the United States has almost always been the laggard, the Europeans and the Japanese have just had a a deeper political commitment to acting on climate change, and President Clinton himself wanted to do something, but um, he didn't have a consensus in Congress. In fact, coming out of that G7, there was a 97 to zero vote in the US Senate saying, in the run-up to the Kyoto negotiations, the United States should not take a commitment at Kyoto that didn't include India and China. Um, So those of us that, that I get traded over to the climate change team, and in the run-up to Kyoto, we knew that we were tasked with negotiating an agreement that um, had to include India and China when every other member of the G7 didn't feel that India and China needed to be included because at that point, they had not been great contributors to the problem of climate change. So on the one hand, the United States has always been an outlier in these negotiations. On the other hand, what has changed in those 20 years is that China and India are now in the negotiations now have taken on commitments. Those commitments are not as ambitious as those taken on by the United States and Europe. Um, but, uh, and also that the agreement, unlike the Kyoto Agreement, which was legally binding in an international sense, is a voluntary agreement. And so what, what this um, latest decision by the Trump administration is to walk away from something that had uh, a consensus among the G7 that included Um, things that Republicans had been calling for, and actually divides the Republican Party. Mitch McConnell was able to get 22 Republicans to sign on to a letter to Donald Trump advocating his withdrawal from the Paris Accord, which meant that there were 30 Republicans that did not sign that letter. And people like John McCain and Mitt Romney encouraged President Trump to stay in the agreement. A number of Fortune 100 CEOs reached out to President Trump, including ExxonMobil, saying, stay in the agreement. And I think the reason for that is that many people saw, because it was a voluntary agreement, the Paris Accord is a place to have a reasoned discussion about climate change and to essentially indicate what countries might do voluntarily. And by walking away from that, the United States is now not in a forum to discuss these issues. Jeff.
4: Let's, Let's go to the next question. That was great.
1: Um, can we talk about uh, the Middle East? Because uh, the the president's um, visit to I'll pick Saudi Arabia and Israel um, seemed certainly well received by the governments there and the leaders there. Um, what what does that mean? How should we interpret that from our side of the ocean?
4: Well, it's it's um, um, you know the, the the broad frame is on how you see it in terms of views about uh, democracy and supporting. Uh, the rise of popular democracy in these countries, and um, you know, and from that frame, it's clearly a step back from kind of the, uh, you know, um, Arab Spring and um, and some of the things that I think the Obama administration and the Bush administration before it were were promoting. Uh, but in certain ways, it, it again, it goes back to what has been a long tradition of U.S. foreign policy in that region, which is to be a very strong. Ally of Israel to try and keep Israel and the lead Sunni countries in a, in, in a group, Egypt and um, and Saudi Arabia, and to strengthen those ties. Uh, I think in an effort to take on um, uh, uh, some of the problems uh, in ISIS and to deal with Iran. So he's placing certain bets in this regard, um, and he's um, emphasizing uh, some strategic concerns over a broader uh, concern with uh, political um, uh, developments in those countries as, as, as means to serve U.S. interests. Um, and uh, again, uh, that's, a, that's, a, that's a hearkening back to tradition, not a deviation from it.
1: Let's use uh, the Obama term, let's pivot to Asia uh, and the fact that both of you have uh, lived and in and researched China in particular. Um, talk a little bit about um, how the difference between Donald Trump the campaigner and Donald Trump the president and his statements about China will have an impact uh, on our relations with that country?
2: Well, I think of all of the pronouncements that Donald Trump made during the campaign, one thing that I think is actually quite impressive, including with the um, announcement about the Paris Accord is how consistent President Trump has been in statements that he made during the campaign. Um, With respect to NATO, he's come back a little bit. He's now said that he sees NATO as an effective force. But with respect to China, it is probably the single biggest turnaround in foreign policy between the campaign rhetoric and his reality as as president. I think he sees that the relationship with China is far more complex than than campaign soundbites allow for. And particularly with respect to North Korea, he has made that the priority and the centerpiece of the relationship and has been willing to put disagreements about trade, about currency levels, um, even some security concerns in other parts of Asia, secondary to dealing with North Korea. Um, I think that that's actually the one message that President Obama gave to him in foreign policy during the transition that the single most difficult challenge that he was going to face was the North Korea situation. I think he and his national security team took that to heart. And I think that they have come to understand that China is uh, part of the solution there. And that, that becomes the defining force in that relationship right now.
4: Yeah, and I, I, would, I, I think that's right on, Bill. And I would just add to that, I mean, it's a complex chessboard that's being laid out there, right? Because there's no question that the single most important relationship going forward in international politics is the US Chinese relationship and you can't get that relationship right unless you have solid relations with Europe and Japan right so if you put both of those in play you're really trying to you know uh, trying to improve both at once is is a tricky business um, he may be able to land that plane, but but if he's going to really, I think, make progress in China, he's got to have support from Europe and Japan in doing it.
1: And again, another area of expertise for both of you where you've lived and researched and written on um, South Asia, particularly India. Could you comment on that before we open up the floor to questions?
2: Um, so um, Jeff was a as I mentioned before, a real coach to me on how to live in India and how to travel and bring family to India. Uh, Just to give you context on what India is if you haven't traveled there, think about the population of the United States, Brazil, Mexico, the rest of North and South America, and then the 500 million people living in the 27 countries of Europe. That's the population of India. And it's the same economic, linguistic, Um, cultural diversity and political diversity of North and South America and Europe. It's mostly democratic, but in some places not so much. Uh, It's really advanced in some places and in other places not so much. So imagine being the prime minister of North and South America and Europe, and that's what um, uh, Prime Minister Modi is. And he's probably already among the most effective prime ministers in trying to bring cohesion to this incredibly complicated place. In many ways, he's quite similar to Donald Trump. Um, He's feared on the left in India as being um, a ardent nationalist, even um, a xenophobic and racist one. Um, He's also selling a message of economic development. Um, What is, I think, slightly different about Prime Minister Modi is he is a real believer in decentralization politically, which is a, com- a complicated thing. He, on the one hand, talks about Indian nationalism and economic efficiency, but he had been a, a governor, a chief minister in India, and really had succeeded at the local level. They both believe in infrastructure. Um, Chief Minister, Prime Minister Modi seems to believe more in the power of democracy as a unifying force in global diplomacy than President Trump does. So the two have not yet had a relationship, and it will be a really interesting relationship to watch because there are a lot of similarities, but below the surface there are also some real differences.
4: Yeah, and uh, I mean, it's, it's interesting. It's probably teed up to be the best kickoff relationship of the, of the United States with any other country. There's no immediate issue dividing them. And I think they are looking to partner quite a bit. And Modi has cut um, strongly against India tradition uh, by pushing his policy in the direction of the United States. And uh, that's been a problem in the past to sustain that political support. But he's, he's made that move.
1: All right. It is your turn, and Cecilia has uh, two microphones, so raise your hands high if you have questions, and uh, could we have you do, as they say on Jeopardy, please make your statement in the form of a question rather than a
3: speech.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Okay. Tom, College of 72. Can you tell me what and why has the perception of Russia changed so dramatically from the last administration when we felt so comfortable with them we could sell them uranium and and ignore them to what's happening now, which you've just discussed?
4: I mean, I, I would say that it's, um, it's hard learning um, by uh, each administration as they've tried to cut deals with Russia. And, you know, Russia's, uh, you know, we've wanted to treat Russia as uh, a secondary power. and um, And they yeah. are bitterly opposed to that status in world politics. So we offer deals that are deals for secondary powers. Okay, we'll, we'll kind of do this with you, um, but you need to do this with us. So both sides come out dissatisfied by it. And you know that Russia's, I would say, consistent aim in all of this has been how does it continue to score points, which it often has to do at the US's expense in order to reestablish itself as an equal right? And, and that, of course, just doesn't play well in Washington, which sees Russia in a very different light. So there's an inherent tension between what Russia wants in the world and how the U.S. sees Russia and what role it should have.
2: The, the only thing that I'd add to that is Crimea was a real breakpoint in international diplomacy. And there are lots of breakpoints in diplomacy, and they often have to do with Um, interventions into the sovereign affairs of other countries, and redoing borders is perhaps the biggest of those. And there have been other ones before. I mean, if you think about Saddam uh, Hussein's invasion of Kuwait in the early 90s, that was such an over-the-top violation of sovereignty. Occasionally, the United States has done those kinds of things, and that's affected our relations in the world in one place or another. But particularly for the Europeans and particularly for our Eastern European NATO allies, given everything going on around Ukraine, it just made Poland and the Czech Republic and Slovakia, the Baltic states, super nervous, sent a real message to Western Europe about, about what the United States would do if any one of those countries' sovereignty was violated by Russia. And it sort of locked the American political system, in some ways that made it uncomfortable for President Obama as he was trying to do the Iran deal where he needed Russia's help, made it very uncomfortable for Obama because he had a Congress on his right. And President Trump has now gone even further in the direction of accommodating Russia, um, where his own party has moved further in opposition to Russia, and he's moving in the other direction.
1: Barbara, we have a question back here. Oh, Althea, yes. Hi, Cynthia Mera, nursing, 67. What advice would you like to give to Mr. Trump regarding his direct communication with world
0: leaders?
4: (laughs) I (laughs) should take
2: that. Well, you know, I think the thing that popped into my mind last, just when you were asking that question, was this extraordinary speech that my wife and I watched on my iPad as we were uh, in bed last night um, of Macron, the new uh, president in France, who gave the first speech by a president in France in, from France in English. Um, And it was clearly directed at the United States, and he starts by saying, I respect President Trump's decision to walk away from the Paris Accord. I deeply disagree with it. Um, But he started with a statement of respect, and I thought that was really quite impressive. Um, uh, A a graduate of UVA Law School who was uh, um, a professor at the law school here who's now the dean of Harvard's Ed School, gives a commencement address every year. Last year's went viral. I just watched his address this year, and the the theme of the address this year is lead with grace. And He goes through all the different definitions of grace. It turns out there's seven different definitions of grace. Thankfulness, um, courage, um, fluid motion, But grace is this wonderful word that captures those things, and his message to the graduating class of Harvard Ed School is to lead with grace. And I think that it can't be understated in international diplomacy how important being respectful and being graceful is. Um, So I I would respectfully and gracefully encourage the president to do that. (laughs)
4: The, uh, just just to, just two words on this, which is that um, it's a it's a great question because, in fact, diplomacy because of the rise of these powerful leaders is going to be more personalistic. It's going to be more leader to leader, and that's something that um, our system and I think most government government systems have have really. Um, been against because things get out of control. And it's better to work a process that doesn't leave it in the hands of leader to leader. You want it well-scripted ahead of time. Um, So the advice that Bill gave is particularly important because that individual coaching of leaders matters more because much more of our diplomacy is going to be among those leaders themselves.
0: Human rights was downplayed in Trump's Middle Eastern trip Yet I read that human rights uh, treatment in Cuba will now be used to reimpose the travel ban. What are we to make of this, I will use the word, transactional apparent nature of foreign policy? Mm
4: -hmm. Well, I think think on human rights, um, it's going to be an opportunistic use of that theme. uh, on the one hand, it, of course, um, benefits uh, the president to speak about human rights at times and to say, I'm for it. But he's going to do it in places where it serves the other interests that he's trying to achieve, rather than as a theme that kind of is a, is a major guide to foreign policy and relations with other states.
0: We have time for one last question.
1: Um, I'm Sarah Engineering82. I'd like to ask. Neither one of you has mentioned North Korea, in your, uh, when we talked a little bit about China and our relationship with China. I, in my own mind, I, I see that any moment, you know, we could have a, have a catastrophic event and and the world be in a very uncertain place. I'd like to hear you address both of you address that for a minute.
2: Um, so. Th- You know, the the basic challenge in North Korea is you've got a country of about 20 million people that is probably, um, other than a a few Sub-Saharan African countries or maybe Yemen, one of the poorest places on Earth. And to the extent that there's any economic vitality there, it's all fueled and financed by the Chinese. The challenge for North Korea is that um, there is no good answer. So if the North Korean government collapses, those poor people flood into China or into the South. And the Chinese don't want that and the South Koreans don't want that. On the other hand, if it continues to stay in its current state, it remains a threat to everyone around. So the the simple answer was, oh, we can bomb or invade or do something to overthrow the North Korean government. But, But nobody wants the after-effect of that. On the other hand, you can't let the current North Korean government develop in the direction that it's going, particularly with nuclear weapons. And what I think, and, and this is one of those things that almost every new administration wrestles with because it goes up the learning curve of all the after-effects, the after-effects for China of any different action, the after effect for South Korea, the after-effects for Japan. Um, It is just a conundrum. And what ends up happening is a set of status quo agreements that allow North Korea to take one step further and one step further um, in the direction of being able to not only have nuclear weapons that they deliver, but nuclear weapons that they can deliver to the United States. And what I think everybody has been trying to figure out is is how to stop that and is there a deal for North Korea there. And no one has that answer, and it's just it remains, it remains a great puzzle. And what everybody has come to realize is, it it requires addressing that puzzle requires the active engagement of China, Japan, South Korea, and the United States. And there's no other way around that.
4: Yeah, I would just. You know, mention that um, something you probably all know, um, North Korea for us is a particularly sensitive topic because one of our students is being held there. Um, he should have graduated uh, this month with his class. He did not. Um, he is still incarcerated there. and. Um, it was something that um, was being worked back channel for a long time, but his parents are now very outspoken and trying to um, keep the the issue very visible. Um, so um, Wahoo Nation has a has Wahoo there in a personal level. Uh, so it's an issue that we're, of course, very interested in and watching closely.
1: Well, and we will send positive thoughts uh, towards his release and safe return. Um, Speaking of safe, uh, be safe here in Charlottesville this weekend. Enjoy your return to Mr. Jefferson's University. Thank you all for your attentiveness today, and please give a big round of applause for our panelists. (laughs)